Psalms 132 reads as follows. A song of ascent. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrath. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on the throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies will I clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. This chapter opens with a very powerful and important phrase. Remember me, O Lord. Do you think this is because the Lord had forgotten him? No, not at all. This phrase is used multiple times throughout the scripture, actually. More frequently than not, it's calling for us to remember the Lord. But it's not uncommon for the phrase, the Lord remembered, to be used in scripture either. In fact, the scriptures tell us that the Lord remembered Noah. And that he remembered Abraham that he remembered Rachel and Hannah. Psalms 136, so a few chapters later, it says, It is he who remembered us in our lowest estate, for his steadfast love endures forever. So it's not really as if God has forgotten anyone. It is instead a plea to him to remember us. And it is okay for us to say that. We want to be remembered, and we should actively remember him as well. So this psalm is saying, remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships that he endured. You know, we skip over, or don't remember very well often, the difficult times that the men and women in the scriptures dealt with. David didn't have an easy life. We won't recount the entire story, but remember, as a youth, he was sent on an errand by his dad to go check on his older brothers. 
And he stood up to everyone and said, why are you going to let this Philistine mock the Almighty God? That took some bravery. And his brothers mocked him and told him to be quiet and go away. You're just a youth. And he continued to stand up. And the king said, fine, go and fight this giant and tried to make him get in his armor. And that didn't work out very well. So he left it there and took the stones, knocked Goliath out with the rock, and then went and cut his head off with his own sword. We leave that part out of the sentence school lessons sometimes, don't we? And then he continued and he was anointed king a short time later and then went on the run for years and years and years from Saul, who the Lord had left. Had to fight for everything that he had. Was betrayed by his own family multiple times. David had it hard. But during that hardship, he remained steadfastly faithful to the Lord. And that's what we should remember about David, that despite all of the circumstances, he remained faithful to pursue the Lord, not in perfection. We remember that story as well, don't we, with Bathsheba. But that was David's effort, his heart, his desire, despite all the hardships, was to remain true to the Lord. And so this author is reminded us, remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships that he endured. This isn't meant to build David up, but simply to remind the Lord that he has been pursuing him his entire life. Now, we're also reminded here, it says he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one. Those are two different things. We must be very, very careful when we swear or vow, especially to the Lord. We must be careful not to do that unless we truly know it's the Lord's intent. And if we know it's the Lord's intent, we don't need to swear or vow, do we? I think we need to remember that just because David did this doesn't necessarily mean it's a desirable model for us. In fact, the scripture later tells us that we shouldn't swear by earth or by heaven or by anything. But simply let our yes be yes and our no be no. David may have gone a little far in swearing and vowing before the Lord, but he did it nonetheless. And to some degree, the Lord blessed him. Because we see the things that David swore and vowed to do are things that no man can possibly do. And yet the Lord, in this case, did not hold it against him. What did David swear to do? We'll take a look here. He says, I will not enter my house or get in my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. It's a good intention, isn't it? The intent is very clear. He's not going to take comfort in his own house or even in his bed until he finds a place to worship the Lord. Couldn't take pleasure in his own palace, if you will, until this was done. David may have gone a little far saying he's never going to go back to sleep, never going to go back to bed. But before we're too critical of David, ask me or answer me this. How many of us go too far the other direction? We're way too comfortable with our unbelievably magnificent houses in comparative nature to even consider the Lord. 
If he went too far one way, we certainly as a society have gone too far the other, have we not? We care little about the Lord and we're very comfortable in our houses. He also said he wouldn't enjoy sleep until he could provide a place for the Lord. And similarly, most of us sleep very comfortably, don't we? And soundly, sometimes all the people of the Lord suffer. David sought a dwelling place, a physical place for the Lord. And this is interesting. I want to talk about this for just a minute. David was desiring a a place, if you will, a fixed uh, symbol and location to worship the Lord. Somewhere where they could return and commune with the Lord, to sacrifice and to do all the things that the Lord wants us to do. I think he had in mind a temple. In fact, I know that's what he had in mind. But it's interesting to note that all through history, the Lord never asked for this to actually happen. The Lord was very content to be in a a tabernacle, a portable tent that was moved around among his people. He wanted to be among and with his people, not necessarily to be assigned to a stationary place. And we see this in the instructions. So let me bring some context into this psalm. I want to read, you can turn if you'd like, I'm going to read the first half of 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we're going to get a little bit of context into this idea of having a temple be built for the Ark of the Covenant and for the Lord to indwell. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, it reads as follows. Now, when the king lived in his house, and this just pauses talking about David, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, Now see, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the days I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of the hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From that time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. 
When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, but the stripes of the son of men but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And so we see here, the words of the Lord, the very clear message. David had it in his mind to do something for the Lord. He said, I don't like I'm living in this amazing house, this cedar panel lined house, a beautiful palace, and the Lord is living in a tent. This is not right, he says. And so he goes and inquires of the prophet. And initially the prophet says, we'll do whatever's on your heart. But the Lord told the prophet, no, tell him this. So he was given this message and the Lord says, look, I've lived with you and among you, moving in and out among you from the time we came out of Egypt till now. And I've never once asked for an amazing building to be built. Brothers and sisters, the Lord lives and moves among us today. I've said this before. He is only present in this physical structure because we are here. Because we are His temple. He lives through His Spirit inside of us. And when we are here, God is here. He is not indwelling this building when we are not here. But the moment any of us who have the Spirit of the living God living inside of us walk inside this building, where is He? He's here. And no matter where we go, he is there. And we see his ultimate plan that he is laying out that through David, he would bring who into this world? The Messiah who will fulfill this prophecy. And we see later on, of course, if we go back several generations, where does Jesus come from? From the house and lineage of David. And so we see through the coming of the Messiah, the fulfillment of an amazing prophecy that was started thousands of years before. And the Lord keeps his commandments. Let me read another verse in the New Testament to provide a little bit more context. Acts 7, 46. I'm going to start in the middle of that verse. It says, David, who found favor in the sight of God... And asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in a house made by hands, as the prophet says. And here he quotes Isaiah. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what kind of place of my rest? Did not my hand make these things? David had it in his mind that he wanted a place to bring honor to the Lord. And again, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. And the Lord 
fulfilled this desire that David had, but we must ask ourselves the question, was it correct to begin with? When studying for this, I noticed one commentator made an interesting observation. They claimed that really, if you look at the, uh, the heartfelt worship and following after the Lord, that it built and built and built as David became the most successful. And about the time the temple was actually finished was really kind of the pinnacle of where the Israelites followed the Lord. And after that, it seemed to begin to drop off and then suffer a very serious decline. And so I asked the question today. What about the building projects that many churches partake in? There's a common phrase, if you build it, they will come. That might work for a baseball diamond. It doesn't work for a church. It has it backwards. It's not if you build it, they will come. It's if the Spirit's here, they will come. And it doesn't matter where that is. It doesn't matter when that is. It doesn't matter whether it's a beautiful structure or not a beautiful structure, whether it's in a tent or in an actual building. If we are in the presence of the Lord, that's where we want to be. And He will be where He chooses to be at any time He chooses to be there. Many, many times I unfortunately see, or I think I see, Churches who strive after growth and building and programs and leave the Lord behind. The desires of our heart are what's important here. Many times we desire something and it may be acceptable to God to do them. Yet sometimes wisdom says not to. Sometimes God gives us choices. I think somehow we think that everything in life is this binary choice. It's either what God tells us we have to do or it's what God tells us we are not allowed to do. What I see in life, believe it or not, I'm not saying there's gray morality, but what I'm saying is there are times that we may have a desire on our heart. God may allow us to do that even if it's not the best way. We need to seek His guidance and only do what is absolutely required for him and otherwise we must seek his guidance and then follow after the ways he wants us to go i found a quote it says god does not measure his people's actions by their wisdom or desire but by their sincere desire for his glory so every decision that we make in life we must ask ourselves who are we desiring after is it his glory or is it my own Is it his glory or what I think is his glory? Is this the right way to go? Is this an acceptable path? Is this what he wants or is it what I want? It's really hard to distinguish sometimes, isn't it? Because sometimes our heart can lead us astray. That's why, as we saw David did, he went to Nathan and asked the question. Nathan gave an answer. Later the Lord said, I don't know. You ever felt confident the Lord told you to do something only to find out later you were wrong? I hope you shake your head yes. Because many times our hearts and our desires will lead us the wrong direction, only to discover God's way was right the first time. Let me move on here and bring tie this second section together. He continues in verse 6. I'm back in Psalms 132 now. 
And he says some peculiar phrases. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrath. Well, what is the it? It's the Ark of the Covenant. We found it in the fields of Gerar. Now, let me, let me try and wrap this up, as in the, the, the concept here. David wants to build a house for the Lord. But David doesn't know where the ark is at. Do, do we see the mismatch here? We had to go searching for it. And behold, we found it. The very presence of God in the ark, and he's putting a building before the presence of the Lord. Have we ever done the same things in our lives? Have we ever sought to do something on behalf of the Lord and for the Lord before we're actually seeking the presence of the Lord? Uh-oh. Even if it's not about a building, how often do we do the same thing? Let's do this. Let's have this Bible study. Let's do this. We're seeking after something before we even have the presence of the Lord to give us guidance for it. They didn't know where the ark was at. We heard about it. We thought it was an Ephrath, and we found it in a field. In some versions, it might say forest. How could David be more concerned about a place to house God than the actual presence of God? I'm going to say that at question again. How could David be more concerned about a place, a physical place, to house God than the actual presence of God? And of course, the follow-up question is, have we done similarly? I have here a great quote. Those of you who have been listening to the Daily Audio Bible might find familiar. Activity for God is not the same as a relationship with God. That's really heavy. Activity, doing things for God is good, but it doesn't replace a relationship with Him. Now, they found it in Ephrath, or in other places it might be called kiriath Jerem. Where is this? Right next to Bethlehem. In fact, Ephrath has been mentioned before. This is where Rachel died and was buried. And it's where Micah 5.2 says, Bethlehem Ephrath is the origin of who? Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? They found the ark in the same spot. Let us not get too busy building houses for him that he did not ask for to lose the very presence of the Lord in the woods. Let us search our hearts and find the place where God is and go and meet with him there. Notice here the plural nature of this. God intends for us to do things together as a group. There is a certain aspect that my relationship with the Lord is strictly that. It is between me and Him only. However, God intends for us to do things in groups. We heard about it. We found it. We will go and we will worship. It's the same way. It's the same thing. When you hear about where the Lord is, when you go and find it, and you go and worship, you want to bring others with you 
It's the beauty of what is going on here. This is a joint effort. They are going together to find the presence of the Lord. Now notice what happens here in verse 11 and 12. It says, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. See, this is a fulfillment of the prophecy before. This is talking about Jesus Christ who is going to sit ultimately and forever on the throne who comes out of the house and lineage of David. But it's also a warning in the next verse. It says, If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Now here's the thing. We have a problem here because that didn't happen, did it? Not in the way we intended. David's sons fell away. They committed sin. And they lost the throne and ultimately lost the kingdom. Just because I know the Lord doesn't guarantee my family will. Just because you know and follow the Lord doesn't necessarily guarantee that your family will either. We must actively engage our children to teach them and to encourage them to follow after the Lord, to seek the truth, to seek Him, to worship Him for all that He is. We cannot ever just sit back and say, well, I've done my part, dust off our hands and let them go. Our lineage does not guarantee anything. And this is a reminder of that. We should teach them forever. It also um, says, I will set on your throne, if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever will sit on your throne. This is so important, and sometimes I think something that we miss in all of this, that we must ensure that we're following the Lord in teaching others. We continue on here, and we see that the Lord has chosen Zion. Zion is another word for Jerusalem physically, but it's also a representation of heaven eternal. We've talked about this in some previous sermons. The Lord has chosen Zion. This has a lot of meaning. If you remember Jerusalem was the stronghold of the Jebusites. The Jebusites were an evil people who practiced all kinds of pagan worship, likely sacrificed children. David captures the city. The name eventually goes from uh, something related to Jebusite to Jerusalem, and that's why it's called his city, the city of David. Solomon built it up, expanded it, built the temple, and the Lord ultimately dwelt in it. So follow with me here. The Lord chose Zion. David captured it. Solomon built it, and the Lord dwelt there. 
Before that, it was just another town. Lots of little villages and towns until the Lord chose it. The same is true with us today and by extension true with the church. We, just like a Jebusite city that was sacrificing children and committing all types of evil acts, we ourselves are an evil people until what? The Lord chooses us. Until grace chooses us, his love conquers us, we are rebuilt, and the Lord indwells in our heart. We're just an evil body. That's hard for us to understand. But it's true. It's amazing that the Lord chooses us. It's amazing that he desires to be with us, isn't it? For the Lord chose Zion. He has desired it. For his dwelling place. If this is true of us today, if he chooses us, he conquers our sin, he gives us the new heart that we spoke of earlier, and he dwells in us, then this is also true. He desires it for us to dwell among us. The God who made everything desires what? To dwell with who? You. Picture that for a minute. He desires to dwell in me. He desires to dwell in you. It is where he finds his rest, is in you. should be encouraging. It should remind us not to go out and live flippant and useless lives, but to live lives worthy of the calling that we have been called. It reminds us to go out and sacrifice for the Lord as he sacrificed himself for us. It should remind us to live a life worthy of him because he desires to dwell in me and to have his resting place forever. See, the Lord never leaves me. Once you have been saved, I believe the scripture clearly states throughout from Old to New Testament, when you are saved, you are saved forever. You cannot lose your salvation. You cannot fall out of favor with him that he will take back what he has given you. He will not return a cold, hard heart to you. He will keep it soft in you. Even if you grow away from him, you will not lose your salvation. He will dwell in you forever. His resting place forever. Do you feel comfortable thinking that the Lord is resting in you? Why not? Some of you may have thought, as I do, ooh, I don't know if I want the Lord hearing what I listen to. I don't know if I want the Lord hearing what I say. I don't know if I want the Lord seeing what I do. You see, if this is a concern for you, then good. It is an encouragement for us to live righteous lives, to put on the righteous clothes that these scriptures talk about, to live a good and right life. His resting place forever. We are a stronghold of sin till grace conquers us. The Lord rebuilds us and he dwells inside of us. His resting place forever. He doesn't get tired of us. He doesn't trade us in. He doesn't seek another. He dwells with us. He's not occasionally with us. 
He's always with us, permanently. Again, this should be an encouragement, that no matter how bad things get, if I know the Lord, He's where? He's right here. I don't have to wait for Him to show up. I can say, as the psalmist does, remember me, O Lord, but the reality is, He's already here. And all I have to do is to rest in Him as He does in me. To allow Him to clothe me in righteousness. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. And her saints will shout for joy. See, brothers and sisters, this clothing of salvation comes from him alone. And when we receive it, we should shout with joys, with joy. Notice here, it gives a word about the enemies. His enemies I will clothe with shame. We look around the world today, and I joined you in this view, and it feels like the enemy's winning. And in some cases that might be. But the reality is, those who do not know the Lord are clothed in shame. And they may never know it here, but someday they will. And no matter how many enemies there are, no matter what they look like, let us never, ever forget. They are clothed in shame and we are clothed in righteousness. Because our God lives in us and loves us. He rests in us. He cares for us. He wants to dwell in us and will empower us to do the right thing when it's difficult. There's an old adage. Bear with me. When you're speaking in public, they say, well, just imagine everyone is wearing their underwear or something like that. You've heard this, right? Okay, good. <laughs> I've never understood that because that didn't make a lot of sense to me. Why would I imagine that? It's supposed to make me feel better. It doesn't make me feel better. But here's the thing. Here's what we know. His enemies are clothed with shame. When we are at work or with our family or with other people who do not know the Lord and they are giving us a hard time, they're mocking us or maybe they're actively fighting against us. Just remember, ultimately, They're wearing their own shame. And we are wearing His righteousness. It's not mine. It's not mine to earn. It's not mine to lose. It is His righteousness. And so we can step back when we come and counter the enemy and we can look at them in love and pity. Why? Because they are wearing their own shame. And we are clothed in righteousness. And He is resting in us forever. And on Him, His crown will shine. Why does it shine? Because Jesus Christ is the light of the world.
now and forever. See, if you go back to Genesis, it opens that way. Remember, there was light before there was the sun and the moon and the stars. You know, in the end, the same thing happens. You don't need the sun anymore. There's light in the new Jerusalem. Who is that light? It's the presence of God. Brothers and sisters, as we go out into this world, let us use this chapter to encourage us. Let us plead to the Lord, remember us. Let us make sure that the actions we take are what he desires for us to do. Let us make sure that we don't focus too much on our own home, too much on our own comfort, and not enough on the presence of God. Let us be wise as a church body and make sure that we're not focusing too much on the things of the world and not enough on the Spirit and whether He is here and dwelling among us. Let us not lose sight of the very presence of God and have to go searching for it. But if you do, you'll find it. He wants to be found. He desires to be found. He wants you. He wants to live in you. We will be clothed with righteousness, with shouts of joy. Let us remember, he will not turn back. That his throne is eternal. And that we should keep his commandments and we should teach our children to do the same. That we are clothed in righteousness and that he rests forever in us. And we should go out knowing that we are more than conquerors. And no matter what enemies we face, we can remember when we look at them and love with pity, they're clothed in their own shame. You may get tired of me telling these stories. It's been an interesting journey the last few years. I say that starting many years before. The longer that I was a police officer, the more I just looked at people with pity. I'm being really serious. Maybe I was just young and ready to go when I first started, but it was pretty easy to take somebody who deserved it and lock them up, walk away. But the more I got to see and hear the stories, the more I went in and saw the conditions that people lived in, the more I saw the true struggles that they had, the more it just broke my heart, including those who were doing things they shouldn't, including those who I still took to jail, who were so clearly wrong and absolutely deserved punishment, but something inside of me, the longer I did it, began to break more and more because I saw their own shame that they were wearing. And sometimes I think they knew it. Maybe it's because people only call the cops when you're like at the, at the bottom. Nobody calls us to celebrate. Oh, and it broke my heart. And even to this day, I'll watch a video of whatever's gone on the news. I'll hear a story. I'll talk to a student. Even sometimes, I don't take this the wrong way, some of you. And my heart just breaks. 
but it breaks most of all for those who are wearing their own shame and they don't even know it. If you have never been saved, if you've never received the new heart we talked about earlier, then you're wearing your own shame. The filthy, dirty sin, the things that you think about that are wrong, the things that you do that are wrong, the things that you say that are wrong. And on top of that, the things that you should do that you don't do, which is also wrong. You wear that every day and it is what is on you. It is obvious to those who know the Lord that you don't. It is apparent sometimes, it's just like wearing clothing. And for those of us who know the Lord, when we meet somebody else who knows the Lord, what do we see? The beautiful robes of His righteousness. Not my own. Not what I deserve. Not what I did. But what He has done. And so as we close, I guess I just ask this question. What kind of clothes are you wearing? Is it what the Lord provided for you on His behalf? then brothers and sisters, we should stand up and shout, as it says. We should thank the Lord for that. And if you are wearing your own filthy shame, there's only one way to change that, and it's not through your own effort. It's through His. And so we encourage, we implore, we beg, as we look out at those who we weep over, who are wearing their own shame, go to the Lord so that you can put on his righteousness. And if you don't know how to do that, I'm going to give you an answer that may not be encouraging. Pray to him. It's not a special prayer. The condition of your heart has to be one where you see your state, you see the clothing that you're wearing, that you desire for a change, that you ask Him, that you beg Him to change it for you. You have to realize you cannot do it yourself. And when you are in that state, when He has called to you, when He has broken you, when you realize you're helpless, when you realize what you're wearing and you go before Him and you cry out for mercy, at some point He will give you that mercy and He will change your life. That is what it means. That is when he dwells in you forever. And you can always turn to him.